You're listening to the Ali at UNT podcast, produced by the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas. Learn something new in every episode as we interview UNT faculty, subject matter experts, and lifelong learners in our community. To learn more about our non-credit courses and events, please visit our website, olli.unt.edu, or send us an email at olli at unt.edu. Now let's join our host, Ali at UNT member, Susan Supak. This is Susan Supak speaking at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas in Denton, Texas, known to most of us as Ali. I am speaking with Dr. Masood Raja, an associate professor of post-colonial literature and theory at the University of North Texas. He is also the editor of Pakistania, a journal of Pakistan studies, author of several books, including ISIS, Ideology, Symbolics, and Counter-Narratives, The Religious Right, and The Talibanization of America, among several others. His next book, Democratic Criticism, Poetics of Incitement, and the Muslim Sacred, will soon be published by Lever Press. Dr. Raja is host of a blog on post-colonialism titled Post-Colonial Space. He served as the project director in the administration of a $1 million grant from the Department of State, providing a three-year cooperative agreement between UNT and the National University of Modern Languages in Pakistan. Welcome, Dr. Raja. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. It is delightful to have you here. I'm looking forward to it. As I said to you personally, when we first met each other, I've been impressed by your extensive background and what you teach and how you blog and all of those things. So I'm really looking forward to a very interesting conversation. And you have published extensively and most close to home taught right here at Ali on world literature and post-colonial studies. Can you give listeners an idea of what post-colonial studies are and what does post-colonial literature include? Thank you. And that's, you know, really the hardest question for me to answer always. So post-colonial literature, like simply stated, is literatures produced in what used to be the former European colonies of the 19th and 20th century colonies. So generally speaking, any works produced from former colonies in Africa, Asia, the Caribbean, the body of texts or literature produced there by those authors, geographically speaking, and in terms of temporality of colonialism, would be considered post-colonial literature. Then within that, there are to further nuance it, it will mostly be literatures produced by native populations or native authors that deals with pre-colonial experiences, experienced during the colonization period, and the struggles of decolonization and beyond. So it's a very broad category within the niche called post-colonial studies. This body of literature, is it growing? Absolutely. Think of it at one point, 
in the late 19th, early 20th, 20th century, 84% of this globe was colonized by European powers. Wow. So that means that the numbers, the sheer number of people who are part of the former colonies, even if you take out the global powers like the settler colonies like United States, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, it's a huge mass of human beings who have had similar experience of having been occupied by foreign powers. So obviously, when you start accounting for their cultural production, the canon keeps growing. Do you find that there is a great lesson in studying that kind of literature for the students and people who aren't students, for the readers, to today's climate? Absolutely, because, I mean, if you look at the world right now, we are at a historical moment in the world where what we thought, the global issues that we thought we had already put to rest are kind of re-emerging, like issues of nationalism and chauvinistic nationalism, aggression towards weaker nations, right? It's re-emerging. So within that, my personal opinion is that as humanists, as professors of literature, if we can introduce our students to learn about other cultures, but through their stories, how do people tell their stories? What are their struggles? And I think that can enable us to create some form of empathy for our local and global others. We have a great scholar, Gayatri Spivak. She is the chair of comparative literature at Columbia University. And in one of her books, she explains the purpose of a humanistic education. And I'm kind of paraphrasing her words where she says is that the purpose of humanistic education is to train the imagination of our students at both ends of the global divide. So train our students here in America to think differently about their global others. And then if we are in Bangladesh or Pakistan, to train the students' imagination there so that they think in terms of their rights when they live in a democracy. So I think post-colonial studies does that brilliantly because it's literature produced in Africa. Let's say I teach a novel called Ifuru by Flora Nawapa, right? So it's set in Nigeria. It's the story of a woman and a powerful struggle of, of her life. It's a struggle of a woman in Africa, but something that my students can relate to because that's also a human struggle. So in the process of teaching a novel set in Nigeria, I can teach them about the Igbo culture, but I can also teach them indirectly to think of Africa and Nigeria in more empathetic terms, and not just something that you need to know about to reproduce in a test. What a marvelous way to link cultures together. So you're in the lives of the people. That's an incredible way to link our different experiences, our global experiences together. Absolutely. Do you find that your students have been surprised by some of the things they learn in this study? More importantly, they are the ones who surprise me because the thing is, when they walk into my class, they already know that they are entering an unusual class because the texts on the list are sometimes the novels they've never heard of them. But then the way they handle the reading and the way they talk about these cross-cultural issues 
it's always so inspiring for me because our students like at UNT, I think we as faculty are more culturally conservative than our students because our students, and this is based in my 11 years of experience at UNT, they are willing to take the risk, you know, and what do you say, so to speak, to get their hands dirty in the process of learning. And so they ask really good questions. They relate to the experiences of these characters. Uh, there's a novel I teach by Ngugi Kiango, which is called The Devil on the Cross. And it is a critique of a certain kind of capitalism. And, you know, here in Texas, you would find that people would be okay with that kind of capitalism. But no, the students then start seeing, oh, how, how am I implicated in this process of exploitation? So I think they are surprised by the content, but the way they handle it with, with a kind of generosity, it's deeply inspiring to me as a professor. I can only imagine, because I feel an energy when I walk on campus of young people. I love Absolutely. it. It's very energizing. It's, it, it lifts me up. I find it very inspiring. They have a wonderful energy to them. You have a very interesting personal background too. <laughs> <laughs> now, before becoming an English professor, you actually served 14 years in the Pakistan army as an infantry officer. And that was combat arms, too, I might add. And I believe, did you serve in the Gulf War? Yes, in the first Gulf War. Did your experience in active combat and serving in the military influence the interests you hold in literature and social issues today? Oh, yes, absolutely, both uh, directly and indirectly. So directly, it is the battalion that I joined it was a highly educated officer corps in that battalion. The first day when I went to report for duty as a second lieutenant, my second in command gave me a list of 100 books that I was supposed to read within the first year. And included on that were popular novels, classical novels, the entire 14 volumes of Toynbee's study of history, capital volume one, that was the direct, I mean, I always loved reading and writing anyway, but that kind of enhanced it. And then in Pakistan Army, especially for the officer corps, if you can read and write well, and if you can speak well, that is actually very good for your career. I mean, it's an advantage and people don't make fun of you for being learned or for being scholarly. And then the impact that it had was that when I left the army in 1996 and came to United States and wanted to go to school, the only interest I had was in literary studies and critical thinking. And so that then became kind of the default major for me because I had to do two years of undergraduate studies because they didn't accept my Pakistan Military Academy degree as a full bachelor's, but only as associate. So in so many ways, yes, it absolutely had a direct relationship to what I decided to study, but it also prepared me for it. That is incredibly interesting. Yes. So it begs another question for me. 
Did your superior officer give you this list and the other officers the list because he thought that this would develop officers that were better at critical thinking, better well-rounded people? I mean, was that common? Was this just a man that was extremely enlightened? I'm mean, so no, impressed no, I mean, by the fact that he did this. No, I mean, the my battalion had a more methodical way of going about it. But for, to be successful as an officer in Pakistan Army, especially in the fighting forces, you were expected to be well-read. And you were expected to be able to write well and then communicate well, present your ideas well. And so the writing was important because even when you're writing an operational plan, you know, you should be able to sit down, draw your conclusions, have your information and write a plan, like a 50-page plan, handwrite it, you know, within a night. So that was an absolute necessity for us. But to also what was believed then and even now is that if you if you're learned enough, if you can read critically, that would enable you to read a situation more critically as well. And also it would make you a better leader because you will be you know, more humane towards your troops and you'll care more about them. So generally speaking, that was the culture of the army. But then within that, my battalion was famous for having officers who were highly educated and very well-read. And so I was lucky enough to then further join that battalion. We touched on the fact that reading this volume of literature, this post-colonialism, links cultures, and it helps people to be more understanding, more empathetic. Do you find, though, that there are certain parts of this literature that do not translate from one culture to the other? Whenever you're teaching cross-culturally, there is always that element of untranslatability, right? You could translate the words on a page, but there is no way if, not even from my, let's say if I read you a verse of Hafiz, right, from Iran, and then translated it for you, maybe literally or figuratively I can translate the meaning of the, but I cannot translate the feeling that you get when you hear a sonnet or, or, or a ghazal in your own language. So that element of untranslatability is always there. But my opinion always has been, what would I rather have as a teacher and a scholar? This idea that it's untranslatable, let's not use it. Have Be a perfectionist and exclude something because I cannot offer a perfect translation of it. Or have at least an imperfect translation of something from another great culture and, and make it our own and share it with our students. So I've always settled for an imperfect sharing of perfect monuments of great literatures from the rest of the world, because I think that still is better than not having it at all. That's a great quote. <laughs> That's a wonderful statement. It brings to mind something that I heard in music that sometimes from one culture, we'll listen to music from another culture, and it doesn't sound very good. 
And someone told me once, that's because there are even certain sounds and certain notes that our ears aren't trained to pick up on because we've never heard them. We didn't hear them growing up. We haven't heard them. And that if we just keep continue listening, we can actually work to perfect our auditory system more that we can truly enjoy that type of music. And I, I think about that in this literature, that if perhaps we continue to read these things, even the parts that aren't directly translatable, if you're getting a more in-depth view of people, then perhaps you can fill in the blanks. You might not understand the word, but you can fill in the blanks a little bit and kind of figure out what the meaning is trying to say. Is that true? Absolutely. And the thing is this, that we are also, since we think of these things in rational terms, right, literature, I think more than the meaning is what is, can we feel? You know, if I read about a character in South Africa, and maybe it's it's written in one of the native languages and has been translated, I may not be able to grasp like the full meaning of a phrase but does it convey feelings, right? Because if it can generate empathy from me for this person whom I've never met, this culture I've never visited, then the literature has done its job, right? It, it has made me feel something for this place which could be absolutely foreign to me. So I think we literature professors by like mostly focusing on the rational aspects of literary studies have kind of robbed ourselves of this potential of literature, which which deals with affect, which deals with empathy, feelings, right? Music people understand that, absolutely, right? And, and so that still makes it kind of a transformative act when, when we read literature from other cultures. Speaking for the population that makes up our membership here at Ollie, we're in over 55 population. And because we're interested in learning, a lot of us are interested in stimulating our brains, neuroplasticity, keeping our thinking sharp, expanding our horizons. And beyond just personally expanding our horizons, I'm taking a leap here. I'm no neuroscientist, but it seems like since they say learning another language or not even just accomplishing another language, but the attempt of learning it helps your brain. It grows more synapses. It helps keep you. I would think that this falls right in that category because you are training your brain to think differently, to read something or hear about people that are different. So not only are you expanding yourself personally in terms of being more empathetic and just a better human being, but it seems like it would be good brain exercise just to train your brain to think differently. Absolutely. And, you know, there is research on it, too, that I have a colleague, he's a leading scholar on critical pedagogy, and especially pedagogy that can enable us to think empathetically about our others. And he always, when he taught his courses, I would sometimes go and talk to his students and was like, how is it going? And it's like, well, by the second week, we know what answers he wants, and we give him those answers. So I went to him and I was like, Mark, do you know this is what your students are doing? And he's like, that is the point, Masood. These kids have never thought of someone living in Africa in empathetic ways. They have never expressed, oh, she's being mistreated. I feel bad for her. 
So even if they are performing that empathy in my class to get an A, the schemas in their brain are shifting because they have now said it. They have performed empathy. So absolutely, when we read literatures from different parts of the world, and when we hold our own judgment and say, well, let's understand within the logic of this story, why is this happening? We're already forcing ourselves in our brain to look at a thing or an event from a different perspective, and that would automatically enhance the way we think of the world or feel about it. That's beautiful. You provide quite a gift to the world. Thank you so much. How do you select what literature you use every semester? It varies depending on the level of the class. So if it is an introductory course to postcolonial studies or world literature, so then I choose texts that are kind of like opening texts that are introductory, but they also introduce different debates of the field to students. So for example, my basic world lit course, what I ended up doing was creating my own reader. And so it starts with a discussion of Heart of Darkness, Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness, which is one of the most canonized novels about Africa, about Congo. And I end the course with Things Fall Apart, which is Chinua Achebe's response to Heart of Darkness. So in between the two are some theoretical works by African scholars and Caribbean scholars about the questions of identity, like people like Césaire, people like Fanon, people like Ngugi Thiango. And they are the ones who give us the major debates. What were African intellectuals or are thinking? What are their major concerns? And then we go and read short stories and essays that have those themes, slavery, colonization, native cultures. And then there is a little bit from the Middle East, a little bit from India. And then by the end, by the time we get to things fall apart, the students have already developed vocabularies and nuanced understanding of the debates themselves. And then they start arguing themselves in those vocabularies. So that's what I do for basic world-lit classes, post-colonial-lit classes. But for graduate students, it's usually theory-heavy. We will read a very dense book on post-colonialism. I use one by Robert Young so that it gives them a grounding in what are the major debates of the field. And then we will read six or seven novels where we kind of try to understand them from that perspective. But it varies depending on the level and the topic of the course. So that leads me to a two-part question. Okay. One would be the advice that you would give to listeners that are intrigued by what you're saying and are thinking, yeah, oh, this sounds like something that I need to check into. I need to check this out. I'd like to start reading these books and I'd like to start discovering this genre of literature. The other is, in this regard, is it important to be guided through the study of world literature? Oh, really? These are really good questions. So first of all, where to start? You know, I would say, first of all, go with your interest, right? If you have traveled, if you have traveled to Africa, traveled to South America, traveled to the Caribbean, Let's say you went to Jamaica for a cruise. You know, ask yourself, are, who are the major writers from there? Right? So you'll figure out 
okay, Jamaica Kincaid has a, a couple of books on Jamaica, right? Then, of course, Jean Rees has White Saragossa Sea, which is partially set in Jamaica. Then you go with Michelle Cliff, right? Lifetime part- partner of Adrian Rich. She has a beautiful novel called A Bang, right? So let your interest guide you. I mean, if you are my age, you know, 55 and others and are taking evening classes, I can safely assume that you have the means to travel, right? Or, you know, you're from that demographic. So let that guide you and then pick up the stories from that part of the world. And I can promise you wherever you have traveled in the world, there is a writer there, there is a poet from that part of the world. Uh, don't worry about what is big, what is canonized, because you don't need to worry about that. Then in terms of do you need a guide, I would highly recommend like your courses. I I ran one of the courses last summer, and it was like five or six meetings. And unfortunately, that was the year we were going to Zoom. So everyone was trying to figure it out. But I would say take one of those courses if it's offered, because no one needs to hold your hand and tell you what to do. But if someone can just share a list with you or their reasons of why to read certain things, then that should be a great help to use. There is also great resources available online. If you just go to YouTube and put, put post-colonialism there, you know, my name will come up. There are like 700 videos there that I've produced. So that should be guide enough. So you don't need a formal guide but you might want to look up a list and take a course, you know, in your own time. And that could be very helpful. You mentioned the term humanistic education earlier. Can you give us an idea of what you mean by a humanistic education? Good. Uh, So first of all, let me point out that to a lot of my friends in the field, I am kind of like a unicorn because I still believe in (laughs) humanism. Uh, We, in a way, in a lot of literary studies fields, we have moved into what we consider post-humanism. And where we already know that we are not centered human beings, there are so many things outside of us that constitute us. And I understand that, but I have held on to this romantic idea of humanism or a humanistic education, an education that enables us to study or read artistic works, literary works, right? Enjoy them, but also build through them a kind of a word in which we can accept each other, right? Without effacing the differences, right? Where I can say, you can look like who you are or do what you do, as long as you're not harming someone or hurting someone, I can respect you and we can still have a conversation. So that's what I mostly mean by a humanistic education that teaches us the value of tolerance, cross-cultural understanding, kindness to others, and love. You know, as Paulo Freire would say, without love, nothing is possible. So. Well, if you're a unicorn, we need many, many more (laughs) unicorns in this world today, I have to say. I mentioned also in the introduction that you were the project director for a partnership between UNT and the National University of Modern Languages in Islamabad, funded by the State Department. Can you explain what that partnership was designed to do? 
Good, great. Thank you for asking that. These programs were introduced by the Department of State when Hillary Clinton was the Secretary of State. And uh, Hillary Clinton, I have deep respect for her and some of the very powerful people in Pakistan that I know have told me categorically that she is the smartest diplomat from United States that they ever met. So she started this initiative where she said, okay, let's give $1 million grants to institutions in United States to develop a partnership with an institution in Pakistan and in Afghanistan. And this was offered under the desk that deals with cross-culturalism in Department of State. The important thing in that program wasn't the deliverables in terms of education or courses, but it was a people-to-people grant. You had to understand that to write the proposal. So what they would do is they would choose the Pakistani institution first, and then they would send out a call for proposals to U.S. institutions. And the U.S. institution's job was if you were a, a, a PI, of the, like, for example, when I decided to write the proposal, you had to talk to your future partners and get their input into what is it that they want from this program. You could not write a grant without their say in, in terms of what they needed. So when I went to our administrators, they were very supportive of it. We had an international director then who was very vice president for international studies, Rick Nader. He immediately met me and guided me through the institutional process here. And then I talked to the administrators at NOMAL and we wrote our proposal. And so the proposal basically was, the program was, we will deliver, we will teach every summer. Two of us will come there and teach two courses. We will help you build a writing resource center. We'll enhance your library resources. But the biggest part of it for me was that we said, we will bring 58 of your scholars to our campus for six weeks stay each, where they will have access to our library resources and they will be able to do their research, but also they'll be able to interact with American students and faculty over here. And so we did all that. We actually exceeded what we had promised our partner institution. And then those 58 people, they became a transformative presence on our campus because every time when a cohort was about to come over, people would ask me, okay, when are they coming? (laughs) who got involved from different departments. And then they have gone back. All of them have finished their PhDs almost. They are employed as professors at different universities. And I did interview some of them later, and I asked them, what has this experience done for you? And across the board, everyone told me that now when someone mobilizes a stereotype of America, we find ourselves saying, well, when I was there, Not everyone was like that. People were nice, people were kind, people were generous. And so that was the mission of the grant, is to develop this deeper understanding. And I think Hillary Clinton had it right, that if if we can bring educators together and if they learn from each other, then the impact would be like sort of a continuous impact. And so I would consider that running that grant and winning that grant 
probably the greatest accomplishment of my career because it impacted so many lives and is still doing so. And I'm grateful to UNT and to Department of State for making it possible. Now, you also have a website, Postcolonial Space. What is that about? The website, Postcolonial Space, is the oldest non-institutional website on postcolonial studies. I launched it in 2002. And on that website, we have resources for scholars. We have actually resources. If you want to look up a term, there'll be video resources or definitions of terms, lists of authors, even a reading list for PhD students if they want to know what to read for their doctoral studies. And uh, it's still an active website. I have uh, maintained it for now more than 20 years. So. Dr. Raja, don't you also have a YouTube channel on postcolonial studies? Is that correct? Yes. So that also came out of COVID. People would always send me queries about, you know, postcolonial terms. And sometimes I had materials on the website that I would send them to. And then I decided, why don't I record some of these things? So I started recording basic definitions of postcolonialism terms, and I started uploading them to YouTube. And as I started doing that, by the way, the channel is just called Postcolonialism on YouTube. And then I realized that as COVID was happening, people were looking for free educational resources, video resources especially, So the demand kept increasing. People would keep asking, do you have a video on that? Do you have a video on that? So then I made it a point to start recording in a a systematic, methodical way so that the resources are available in well-arranged playlists. So now we have about 650 educational videos. And in any given month, uh, about 200,000 people use them, come and visit them. Every month, usually our watch time is from 4,000 hours to about 5,000 hours. Yeah. Oh, that's impressive. Congratulations. Yeah. So how does a person find that? Do they just Google your name, YouTube? Is that it? If you are on YouTube and you, if you just put Masood Raja or postcolonialism, it will come up. That's great. I can't thank you enough for taking the time to talk to us. This is such a great subject. Thank you so much for asking me to do this because it's always enjoyable to talk to someone who wants to share it with a wider audience. Absolutely. It's definitely something that needs to be shared. So thank you. This has been Susan Supak speaking at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas with Dr. Masood Raja. Thanks for listening. The Ali at UNT podcast is recorded and edited by Susan Supak and produced by me, Jordan Williams. If you enjoyed this episode, check out our previous interviews and subscribe to this podcast in your favorite podcast app. To receive email notifications about each new episode, join our email list at olli.unt.edu slash podcast.